chapter 1 again. That's where we'll be tonight. We're going to look particularly at verses 3 through 8 um, tonight, but we looked at verses 1 and 2 last week, and, and to get us into the context of the verses we're studying tonight, I'll read beginning in verse 1. So Colossians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Lord, now I pray that you open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law. Open our ears that we may hear Open our hearts that we may believe. Open our minds that we might understand. And God, as we leave this place, as a response to your word tonight, I pray that you would open our mouths that we might sing your praises. That you might, through this message and this passage, tune our hearts to sing your grace. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if... If when we read verses 3 through 8, um, those verses seemed a little bit convoluted to you or tangled up, um, lots of ideas piled on top of one another, hard to follow, um, then let me just start tonight by saying that you're not alone because they seem that way to me. Even as I read them out loud tonight, uh, there's a lot there. And the fact of the matter is that these six verses, verses 3 through 8, which we just read, are in the Greek one long sentence, uh, a complicated sentence, a sentence with 102 words in it. Uh, if you were in school, you remember that your teachers used to call those run-on sentences. Uh, some of you remember what it was like to write run-on sentences because you were writing your papers in grade school or maybe in high school even, and you are in such a hurry to get down everything that you were thinking on the page that you scribbled it out all at once without... Uh, cogent structure or even proper punctuation. Uh, so what should have been maybe four sentences uh, actually were strung together in one long sentence. And in the margin of your paper in red ink was written uh, three letters, R-O-S, which you knew stood for run-on sentence. Uh, that's at least the way it was for me because I wrote quite a few of them. And some of us are still doing this today. I get cards and emails from different ones of you. And so you're still, uh, I can tell, writing run-on sentences. And I would do the same thing. My sermons are big, long run-on sentences. If we were all grading each other, there would still be a lot of red ink spilling. Uh, and I say all that tonight to say, uh, if you write those kinds of sentences, you're in good company. Because Paul wrote them too. And you have a biblical justification now uh, to write without uh, grammar and punctuation and other things. In fact, Paul is famous for doing this. If you read uh, the beginning of Ephesians, there are a couple of sentences there uh, longer than this one. So what we have here in verses 3 through 8 is basically a thank you note. Um, but one that is written in one long, 
but richly packed, run-on sentence. And before we go on, I just want to pause and have you consider why Paul wrote this way. Why did Paul, this man with, with great learning, this man who is writing things that he wanted people to understand, why did he write in these long sentences, uh, these confusing sentences? Well, uh, two reasons. One, two reasons that I can think of anyway. One is that uh, he must have been so passionate about what he was writing that once his pen hit paper, he was just putting down everything that he knew about God and wanted to convey, convey to these people like a person that's speaking to you and seems to throw out to you a whole paragraph without ever taking a breath because they're so excited about what it is that they have to share. I think that's what's going on in these verses tonight. I think Paul is so excited about what he has to share with the Colossians and through them t- with us that he just kept writing. Uh, for six verses and 102 words. That's one reason. The second reason I think Paul writes this way uh, is because God wanted us to have to study and think and examine His Word. God doesn't want us to be skimmers of the Word of God. And so sometimes He writes things or allows the writers to write things in a difficult manner or at least a confusing manner so that we have to slow down and really pay attention to what we're reading. If this read like the newspaper, you would read it in a hurry and forget everything that you read by the next day. And so God has His writers sometimes writing in difficult sentences so that we have to pay attention. Now, all that is just uh, way of, by way of introduction to say these, uh, this is what these verses are, a thank you note, a difficult sentence. But the question for the rest of the time now is what does this 102 word sentence actually say? What is the content of the sentence? What is, he, what is he talking about? And that's a harder question because he does make so many twists and turns uh, to get where he's going in these verses. But when we look at it closely, we find that Colossians 1, 3 through 8, uh, though it is one sentence, actually has four subjects. So you remember grammar in school, the subject is the noun, usually at the beginning of the sentence, that is doing the action in the sentence. Um, Four nouns in this sentence that are doing the action in the sentence. Uh, Paul, in verse 3, is acting. And then verses 4 and 5, we find the Colossians acting. Verse 6, we find the gospel itself acting. And then verses 7 through 8, we find Epaphras acting. So there are four (coughs) main subjects, four main nouns in the sentence that we're going to think about tonight. So that's the way we'll proceed by asking the question, what is it that Paul and the Colossians and the gospel and Epaphras, what were these people doing in this big, long sentence? So it'll be kind of a layman's form tonight of sentence diagramming, uh, which probably also brings up bad memories and red ink from school for you as well. So four questions. Uh, All of them are the same except for one word in each one. What is Paul doing in this sentence What are the Colossians doing? What is the gospel doing? And what is Epaphras doing in this sentence? So number one, what is Paul doing in this sentence? What do we find Paul up to here? Well, when we read verse 3, we find quite simply that Paul, along with Timothy, is giving thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is also praying always for the Colossian church. He's doing two things. He's giving thanks for the church, and he's praying for the church. Now let's think about that for a moment. First note, giving thanks to God. He's not giving thanks to the church here. He's giving thanks to God for the church. So he had heard from Epaphras evidences of grace, 
among these people at Colossae, but he's giving thanks to God because he knows that God is the one who actually deserves the credit for the things that are happening among these people. And that prompts me just right up front to ask two questions of myself and of you. First, do you notice evidences of grace in other people that you might be thankful about? You pay attention to the maturing of character that you see in fellow believers. Do you notice when someone is moving forward in their levels of commitment to the Lord? Do you notice when someone is growing in their knowledge of the Bible or their commitment to read it? Or are you, like so many of us are, so wrapped up in your own little world that you don't even notice when other people are moving forward or when they're taking steps back? Are you able to give thanks to God, first of all, because you notice the evidences of grace in other people? And then the second question would be, when you notice those things, do you take the time to give thanks to God for those things? You notice and say, well, Joe is really doing well. Or do you say, Joe is really doing well. I ought to remember to thank God for that. Because I should be happy that Joe is doing well. And again, many of us probably don't do that. We might thank God for our own successes We might even thank God for other people's successes when their successes benefit us, but rarely do many of us thank God for other people's successes simply because we're happy that the other people are growing. So the the symptom is we don't thank God for others like we should. The disease is we're so worried about ourselves that we don't notice others like we should. So we find, first of all, Paul giving thanks to God for others. And I would just urge you to let that be a model for you, to pay attention to others, to notice others, and to give thanks to God for them and to encourage them, which he's doing in these verses as well. So he was, pray- he was thanking God for them, but he also says at the end of verse 3 that he was always praying for the Colossians. And I want you to think that out as well. Remember... Paul had great difficulties of his own to contend with and to pray about, didn't he? If you remember last week, we learned from chapter 4, verse 18, that Paul is actually writing this letter from the friendly confines of jail. So he had plenty of his own matters to worry about and to pray about. And you can picture him in the jail. He's probably chained up, most likely hungry. Perhaps he's bruised and battered. Definitely treated unjustly. He didn't deserve to be in jail. Lonely, cold and damp. At one place in another book he asks for his his coat to come because he's cold in the prison. Humiliated. And more than likely feeling a little more useless than he might normally feel. This man who preached all over the known world is now confined to a little bitty cell. All of those things are going on in his life. And there he is in that lonely, cold, dark jail cell, praying for a tiny little country church filled with people whom he'd never met. Isn't that amazing? How many times do you pray for people you've never met? I hope a lot. How many times when you're in the pit of despair and you have so much to pray about on your own, are you actually praying for others, even others whom you've never met? That's what Paul is doing here. Do you have that kind of heart towards other believers or non-believers? We ought to. We have an example here. Most of us have a hard enough time praying for the people that we know, don't we? So let's play praying for other people. And again, that's because so often we're focused on self. 
so wrapped up in our own prayer requests, our own problems, our own agendas, our own church, that we fail to see that there is a lot out there to pray about. We don't have time to think about the needs of others when we're always looking at the needs of ourselves, especially those we've never heard of. So if we learn anything from Paul in verse 3, it is a radical orientation away from self and towards other people. His giving thanks for them meant that he wasn't just looking at himself, but he was looking at other people so that he might give thanks for them. And his praying for them meant that he wasn't just looking for him at himself and at his difficult circumstances, but he was looking away from himself and to other people, even people he's never met. A radical orientation away from self and towards others. And there are some ways that we can cultivate this very practically. Let me just mention a few of them. Come to prayer meeting. One of the quickest ways to learn how to pray for other people is to come to the one thing in the week where they're listing for you exactly what they want you to pray for. So be consistent with that. And then when you get there, actually listen. Uh, Maybe even write those things down so that you can remember how to pray. A second way is real simple. Read the newspaper. If you know what's going on in the world, you can actually pray for the people that live on the other side of the sea. But if you don't even know where they live or what they're doing or what's happening... You're not nearly as likely to pray. Get a copy of Operation World. You're going to pray for missionaries and the cause of missions and the people groups in this world who haven't heard of Christ. You need to know who they are so you can pray for them. Write the missionaries that we have newsletters from on the board and say, put me on your newsletter list so that I can remember to pray for you. Get those newsletters in the mail, read them, and pray. And I'll just give you one other personal note of something that I've started doing the last year, and that is take the church role. Um, I've put it actually on a spreadsheet on my computer, but you can do it by hand. Take the church role and beside every person's name, write prayer requests that they've given you lately or things that you just know you need to pray about. It's simple. So, so we'll use Justin as an example since we talked about his scholarship tonight. On my list next to Justin Herrig's name, it says... Pray about his college stuff. Going to college, getting the money that he needs, etc. And so I can remember to pray for Justin. Not because I can remember everything that's going on in everyone's life, because I've written it down. That's why. So do those kinds of things. Just take practical ways to focus your attention off of yourself so much and put it on others. Now, number two. What do we learn from the Colossians? What are the Colossians doing in this sentence? Well, first, uh, we find in verse 4a that they're exercising faith in Christ Jesus. The second half of verse 4, we learn that they're exercising love for all the saints. The first half of verse 5, we find that they're exercising hope in the promise of heaven. And then at the end of the verse, we learn that they had previously heard of the word of truth, the gospel. So four actions that the Colossians are said to be doing in this verse or to have done. Believing, loving, hoping, and hearing. And what I want to do with those is I want us to think about, uh, with the information we have in these verses and the rest of the Scriptures, what order did those things happen in? Let's put hearing, hoping, thinking, I mean, excuse me, believing and loving. Let's put those four things in chronological order. And I'm not just doing this for fun or to fill up a little space in the sermon. I hope it will make sense in a moment why I'm doing this. In what order did these things happen? Well, hearing 
in these in this verse, verse five is past tense, isn't it? You previously heard. So that must be the first thing because it's the only thing uh, that is listed in the past tense. So first they heard the gospel. And then if we compare this with Romans 10, we find that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we can deduce from that that faith or believing must have come second. They heard first and because they heard, they had faith, which comes by hearing. Faith in Christ, he says, verse 4a. So that leaves us with two other things that they did. They, they First they heard, then they had faith, but then the last two things were that they loved all the saints and they had hope in heaven. How do we get those in order? Well, Paul says that they loved all the saints. Pay attention to this. The love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So their hope in heaven caused their love for all the saints. So the third thing must have been hope in heaven. It must have come before love because it actually produced love. So they heard the gospel. They had faith in Christ. And then they had hope in heaven because of their faith in Christ. And because of their faith in Christ and their hope in heaven, then they were able to love all the saints. So here's what we have. Heard the gospel, believed the gospel, believed in Jesus, hoped in heaven, and therefore loved the saints. Now let me point something out before we go back to this chronological order, and that is that the Colossians are holding out for us the same example Paul did. A radical orientation away from self and towards other people. That's what he's getting at when he says they loved all the saints. All what saints? He's not just talking about the saints in Colossae, or he wouldn't have used the word all. They must have been showing their love for churches around them. Maybe even churches on the other side of the sea. Maybe they were one of the churches that supported the poor saints in Jerusalem when they took up an offering. Probably not, but they could have been. Or maybe they were supporting other churches around uh, Asia Minor. But the point is, they were looking away from self and towards others. They were loving all the saints, just like Paul was. And that's what we should want for ourselves. We should want to be like Paul and the Colossians. Now, if we follow our chronological sequence back up the chain, we can discover where that kind of radical orientation away from self and towards others comes from. So let's go backwards now, back up. The Colossians, fourthly, loved all the saints because, thirdly, they had a hope in heaven. Let's just pause there for a moment. How does a hope in heaven produce love for all the saints? That's not normally what we hear, is it? Normally we hear people that are heavenly minded are no earthly good. But here he's actually saying their hope in heaven, their focus on heaven actually made them love people that were living on the earth. Here's how it works. They knew that the earth wasn't their home. And therefore they knew that all the discomforts that they experienced, all the problems that they had, all the aches and pains that they underwent, all their worldly needs and all their worldly desires weren't as big a deal as most of us think they are. Because this ain't our home. That's what they knew. Their hope was in heaven, not here. And when your hope is in heaven and not here, you don't have to spend all the time worrying about here. You don't have to spend all the time worrying about your own treasures. So then your heart and your checkbook and your day timer are freed up to love all the saints. 
and to give thanks for others and to pray for others like Paul did. Because you're not always focused on you and on here. You're focused away from you and away from here. So a hope in heaven led them to love all the saints. So now we're working backwards. They loved because they hoped. Well, why did they hope? They hoped because they had put their faith in Christ. And when the gospel comes, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. We get our hope in heaven from putting our faith in Christ. And then how did they put their faith in Christ? Back up to the top of the list. Because they heard the truth, the word of truth, the gospel, as he describes it at the end of verse 5. The gospel that promises us the heavenly home. So the point I'm trying to make, the main point I'm trying to make is this. Both Paul and the Colossians were able to live radically outside of themselves because their sights were set on heaven. Their treasures were laid up in heaven. Their thoughts were in heaven. Their hearts were already in heaven. So that their own problems, their own needs, and their own anxieties became light, momentary afflictions. And the needs of others became much, much magnified. They were freed up from self-focused living so that they could focus on other people and radically love them. So the reverse of what we hear so often is true. You have to be heavenly minded if you're going to be of earthly good. That's what Colossians 1, 4, and 5 is teaching. And let me remind you again that the way they became heavenly minded was not by just saying, I'm going to be heavenly minded. I'm going to change my attitude right now tonight. I'm going to rededicate my life to being heavenly minded. No. How do they become heavenly minded? Hearing the word of truth and putting their faith in Christ, that got them to be heavenly minded and that helped them to be loving other people. So the result of that is this application. If we find ourselves fixated on the stuff of the earth and not living as though our hope were in heaven, we are in those moments of fixation not believing the gospel. I'm not saying we're not Christians at all, but what I'm saying is when we find ourselves fixated on this stuff of this earth, We are forgetting the gospel, which tells us this isn't our home, that Christ has bought us a mansion in glory. So let me ask you before we go on to number three, do you really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you really believe that heaven and not earth is your home? And if so, are you living as though that were true? by radically loving other people and forgetting about yourself so that you can look to others. We might further press this point then by going to number three, which is this. What is the gospel doing in this sentence? Well, Paul first says that the gospel has come to the Colossians, verse 6, and that in coming it was bearing fruit and increasing. Now, bearing fruit and increasing is exactly what we've just been talking about all along when we're saying we should focus on others and love others. That's what he means by bearing fruit and increasing. Uh, So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on bearing fruit and increasing here and asking what the gospel is doing. But I do want to spend some time on the first thing that the gospel is doing. Namely, he says the gospel has come to you or has come to us. What does that mean? 
does it mean that the gospel has come to us? Well, very simply, it means that we haven't come to the gospel. We didn't go out looking for God. God actually came looking for us. The Colossians weren't out looking for God. God was looking for them, coming to them in the gospel through the person of Epaphras who brought it to them. And you can find that that's true. If you just flip over to chapter 4, verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7, Excuse me, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. You learn that these people weren't looking for God. He says, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Bad things. The people that do these things, they're not the people who are looking for God. It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. When God met the Colossians through the preaching of the gospel, they weren't looking for God. They were immoral, impure, passionate, desiring evil, and greedy. That's what they were. So when he says the gospel came to you, what he's saying is in the midst of your wretched condition, your undeserving condition, the condition where you weren't at all looking for God, totally focused on yourself and your desires, the gospel came to you even then giving you the assurance of heaven which allows you to love all the saints. The same could be said for any of us who have believed. We did not initially go looking for the gospel. God brought the gospel to us. Some of us through our families. Some of us through acquaintances in school. Some of us by wandering into a church one day not knowing why we were wandering in but knowing that God was compelling us to go. The gospel came to us. Now, what's important about that is this. What I'm not saying tonight, what I'm not saying tonight is everybody go out and try harder at loving other people, praying for other people, and living radically outside yourself. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying try harder at those things. We've just said when we looked at verses 4 and 5, that it's the gospel that puts a change in our perspective, focuses us on heaven, that allows us to live outside of ourselves. The gospel is what does the work, not us. And now we're saying even that the gospel came to us. We didn't go after the gospel. The gospel is not something that you work hard at to try to find or understand or achieve or live up to. The gospel came to us. The gospel acted upon us before we acted towards God. That means that any loving or any praying or any living outside of ourselves that we do is not a result of our hard work, but it's a result of God's grace to us in the gospel. And even the gospel coming to us was not a result of our hard work. That was grace as well. So the message tonight is not try harder. The message tonight is believe the gospel more fervently, more radically, more assuredly than you ever have before. Only believing the gospel will permanently change the way that you live, not pulling up your bootstraps. What is the gospel? Let me go over it briefly before we go on so that there's no confusion. Here's the gospel in one verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
four things in that verse that make up the gospel. Number one, God. Number two, world. Number three, son. Number four, believes. The gospel starts with God who made us and who owns us and who deserves 100% allegiance. But we are the world. We are worldly. We haven't given God allegiance, have we? Not like he deserves. So we're in deep trouble. But God in his grace sent his son to live a perfect life on our behalf and to die a perfect death on our behalf and to be risen on our behalf so that if we would believe in that son, we would have eternal life. That's the gospel. And what I'm saying to you tonight is that that gospel doesn't just get you into heaven. That gospel focusing you on heaven changes the way you live on the earth. If we believe the gospel, we will be changed in the way that we live. Now finally, the fourth question. What is Epaphras doing in this sentence? Well, in the very immediate sense of the days in which this were written, Epaphras was with Paul in prison. And he had informed Paul of the love of the Colossian church. You read that in verse 8. He also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So somehow Paul and Epaphras ended up in prison together. And Epaphras said, Paul, let me tell you what's happened in Colossae the last five, six, seven years. Now, the reason why Epaphras is the one who's informing Paul about what's going on in Colossae is because Epaphras was the one who taught them the gospel in the first place. And we learn that in verse 7. You learned it, it being the gospel which had come to them in verses 5 and 6. You learned it from Epaphras. So Epaphras is said to have done two things in this verse. Number one, he taught the gospel to the Colossians. And number two, he reported their love back to Paul. And again, we have this connection, don't we, between the preaching and hearing of the gospel and the changed life of the people who believe it. He preached, they loved, he then informed of their love. That's what every good pastor wants to see. He wants to see his people change in their love for others and in their love for God. That's what I want to see. That's why week after week, I'm going back over the simple gospel. Not because I can't think of anything else to talk about. Not because I think that the room is filled with unbelievers and I'm only preaching to unbelievers every Sunday morning. The reason why I go back over and over and over the gospel again and again and again, and I will as long as I'm here, is because the gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God, not only to get us into heaven, but to change the way that we live on the earth. When we believe the gospel... And only when we believe the gospel will our lives change. And believing the gospel doesn't just happen one time. It happens every moment of every day of your life, if you really believe it. So, in the spirit of Epaphras, the pastor at Colossae, who kept teaching them and teaching them and teaching them the gospel... I say one more time tonight, the message is not and never will be try harder. The message is always believe deeper. Trust the blood of Jesus. Lean on the love of Jesus. Rest in the grace of Jesus. Believe in the reality of heaven bought by Jesus more tomorrow than you did when you came in here tonight. That's the message. Be more assured of the truth of the gospel. That 
will change the way you live. That will allow you to radically live outside yourself. Let me just give you one more verse as I close. It's from 1 John 4.19. We love because He first loved us. Hear that well. The message is not go out and love. The message is realize that you're loved. We love because He first loved us. Lord, help us believe that. God, not superficially, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, translating to the very nerve endings at the ends of our fingers and toes. Help every beat of our heart say, I know based on the truth of God's word and the truth of the cross that God loves me, that God has forgiven me, that God has a plan for me, that heaven is my home. God, if we know that and we know that we know it, if we really believe it, these verses say it will change the way we live. And that's what we want. We want to become more like Jesus. So help us not try harder. Help us believe deeper in Him. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.